0: Welcome to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, we'll speak with Representative Jim McGovern about protecting trans kids, gun safety, and why he is driving his father's Jeep. And we'll be joined by some of the cast of Shout, Elevate, Inspire, who take the stage at Springfield Technical Community College this weekend and learn more about First Generation and the performance project the organization's bringing all those folks together. Today is April 20th. 420 in The 413.
1: And everywhere it is an unofficial but widely recognized cannabis holiday before we introduce our special guest i thought i would share this piece of history from time magazine written by olivia b waxman some say 420 is code among police officers for marijuana smoking in progress some cite bob dylan's song rainy day women number 12 and 35 because 12 multiplied by 35 equals 420 but to put it bluntly those rumors of the history behind how April 20th and 420 got associated with marijuana are
0: false. The most credible story traces 420 to Marin County, California. In 1971, five students at San Rafael High School would meet at 420 p.m. by the campus's statue of chemist Louis Pasteur to partake. They chose that specific time because extracurricular activities had usually ended by then. This group, including a man named David Reddicks, became known as the Waldos because they met at a wall. we so creative. I know, they right? would say 420 to each other as code for marijuana. Later, Reddix's brother helped him get work with
1: Grateful Dead bassist Phil Lesh as a roadie. So the band is said to have helped popularize the term 420. On December 28, 1990, a group of deadheads in Oakland handed out flyers that invited people to smoke 420 on April 20th at 4:20
0: p.m. One ended up with Steve Bloom, a former reporter for High Times magazine and authority on cannabis culture. The magazine printed the flyer in 1991 and continued to reference the number. Soon it became known worldwide as a code for marijuana, and in 1998, the outlet acknowledged that the Waldos were the inventors of 420. All that from Time magazine
1: and joining us this 420 from our very own 413 is Springfield's own Peyton Schubrick, owner of Six Bricks Cannabis in Springfield, right around the corner from the NEPM Studios, one of only three black female-owned pot shops in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me. So, Six Bricks is not just female-owned, it's family-owned. Like, your family is on the board for Six Bricks. How did that come about?
2: Yeah, it's actually an interesting story. So a little bit about myself growing up here in the city of Springfield. Uh, I was in a dry household. There was no smoking, there was no drinking. It was a focus on water and athletics. And so uh, after completing undergraduate at College of the Holy Cross.
1: Where uh, you played what sport?
2: Where I ran track nice. and field. <laughs> uh, the 400, I remember it vividly. Uh, it's hard <laughs> to forget that race. Uh, I the voters voted to legalize in 2016. And so I had the hard task of telling my parents who at the time thought I was going to go to law school that I instead wanted to be a legal drug dealer. Uh, That's quite frankly how I put it. Uh, And that was important simply because I knew that if I was going to go into this space of cannabis which was and still is primarily white male owned and operated that I would need the support of my family. And so so... For me to even consider this, I needed them to agree to help. And so Six Bricks is a play on the last name Shoe six people in my immediate family. Uh, My father, my mother, and my sister all participate day in and day out. For those listening, yes, that means I manage my parents, and that's an interesting (laughs) dynamic, right? Talk about Christmas getting interesting, right? Um, But uh, it's been a a journey. and I saw those numbers. This all you got me? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Quite literally it's like we're gonna to talk to HR about that on Monday
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> um, but yeah it's been a great experience of being able to bring together the aspects that are really important to me like family like access to cannabis so that it can be a part of an individual's wellness routine and having the support of my family to make that dream now a reality
0: I think it's also really important, like not only is it like black owned, it's female owned, but like it's local owned, too. Like that's another problem I see in the cannabis industry from the outside in. Like there's a lot of outside folks coming in to start businesses here, but it's also really important to have folks from here starting those same businesses and reinvesting it in the community.
2: Oh, most certainly. So you do have, as you described, a lot of multi-state operators um, that have had success in other states that legalized prior to Massachusetts that come in and, in my opinion, do a rinse and repeat model of what they found successful in those other states. The problem is it doesn't actually engage the community in a meaningful way. And so for me, Sixbricks becomes extremely important to the community because it acknowledges, the one, the checkered history, right? Because cannabis was not always legal. So what did it do to a community like springfield and at the same time it allows me to consider um, with the disposable income a lot of our residents have how do they get to make a legal purchase and feel good about it and not be reduced down to the things that are going to be eight dollars or four dollars and less than ideal in terms of what they're looking to achieve in their cannabis experience
1: we're speaking with peyton schubrick the owner of Six Bricks Cannabis right around the corner from these studios here in Springfield. Springfield born and bred, and you mentioned that you were in a dry household and that you had to tell your family that you're not gonna be a lawyer, but you're gonna go into the world of cannabis. Now they're all a part of it. Was there a long process to bring them on board to being a part of it? And is cannabis, if coming from a dry household, now a part of your own uh, repertoire personal lives?
2: Great question. So I would say the hardest person to get on board in full transparency was my father. I mean, I remember to this day telling him I'm not going to law school. Now, to paint the picture for all the parents listening, he had paid for me to, one, take the LSAT prep course as well as take the test. So imagine his surprise, right? You go that far in the journey, and you're just like, ah, I'm going to change my mind, right? Um, so it took him probably a few weeks to really wrap his mind around it. I still remember. Remember saying like I don't want to go to law school. I want to legally sell cannabis. And he's like, When did you start smoking cannabis? Right. Those. That was the first response. Right. Uh, <laughs> and it was informing him, No, I don't smoke. But I acknowledge it's going to happen here in Springfield, whether we want it to or not. And I think I can do a better job of having a business model in this space than the many operators I'm seeing kind of swarm around the city of Springfield. Um, So once he got involved and was on board, it was kind of full steam ahead. And that's really where the learning journey for all of us started in the family to understand uh, what cannabis actually is. What is CBD versus THC? How can it be a part of your wellness routine? And there was a lot of myths that we were uh, believing at the time, right? You know, it was the Understanding, you get high, and then you're on the couch eating Cheetos for hours on end, and you see the cheeseburger in the corner doing yoga because you know you're on this trip. All of which can
1: happen, but doesn't have to happen every time. Everybody's exactly. experience is
2: different. <laughs> most certainly. So, it's understanding what was our experience going to look like, and taking safe and calculated risks, and exploring what cannabis usage could look like for us each individually, while also at the same time as a collective, and how that would feed into our business model
1: i was saying off the air how i came from trying to hide it from my parents as a child to now that my parents generation going to places like six bricks and trying to work with a bud tender about it as wellness as, as about you know trying to find healthy ways of using this substance that was controlled for a while so it's really like it's mind-boggling to think back just you know that few decades ago how far it's coming. We're speaking with Peyton Shubrick from Six Bricks Cannabis in Springfield. Uh, we've got a lot more questions for you. Uh, but, but one of the most important things that I think you're doing, and you referenced this before about the impact that you knew marijuana cannabis was having in the city of Springfield in regards to the legal system and then kind of coming in when it becomes legal and owning your own city and, and the cannabis usage in that city, you're working with an expungement clinic. Uh, to try to, to deal with the previous repercussions of what went on for cannabis possession and sales. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, most certainly. So part of what really drove me to be a part of this industry was acknowledging, I went to a public high school. I knew the kids who sold the dime bags and looking at the trajectory of our lives, right? The ways in which that they were then able to progress or not progress because then they were arrested. Their lives were forever changed. And now you have that same plant being legalized and on those same corners now being sold and nobody's talking about the wealth gap, the disparities in communities like Springfield. And so for me, it was really considering if we're going to have a business model in this space, we cannot be tone deaf to the reality of what was happening in this community prior to that legalization. So if you look at the physical layout of the store, we have a timeline on the history of cannabis talking about the war on drugs. If you look at our our word cloud wall, we're not just calling it cannabis because when I grew up, it was pot and it was broccoli. And if you had the foreign exchange student talk to you, it was diggity dank, right? <laughs> so including all these aspects. Tell me um, more. Yeah. No. <laughs> I love these. Yeah. Um, but the expungement clinic really was an opportunity to uh, more formally acknowledge that. We worked with community legal aid and many sponsors being local roots, safety Labs, Tree Works. And we wanted an opportunity for those that had a conviction related to cannabis or a nonviolent crime to have an opportunity at a fresh start. So we were able to host it on our site this past Sunday and help the community free of charge simply say, we acknowledge that you buying cannabis today might be a great experience, but you may have also had a history with a less than ideal experience and how can we right that wrong? So in many ways, restorative justice for a community that really does
0: deserve it. I think that ties into some of the state's attempt at a, a social equity program, where the cannabis industry is con- is considered, like we've got one, and I do believe it's modeled on what's happening in Oakland in general. But can we talk about like just the pros and cons of it? Because on the whole, like it's a good and very necessary program. But when I look at it, I maybe see some holes towards the end. Again, one of those ledges that you reach where like you got all this support, you've got all this support, and then you hit a certain line, and then there's nothing. There's the floor just drops out. Almost oh, certainly. I describe the social equity program
2: at a best attempt uh, to get uh, those that have prior convictions in cannabis, people of color, those who are living in areas of disproportionate impact involved in the legal market. However, it's the equivalent of learning all the games of monopoly and not being given the cash to actually play the game. Mm. And so when you think about cannabis, you have to remember that there are many barriers to entry, but the biggest is capital. When, on average, you're spending $1.5 million for a retail license, and that's all in to go through licensure, to build out your space, to hire folks, to buy product, to cut a ribbon and open doors, coming from a community like Springfield. How many people do you know that you could simply say, "Hey, I need 1.5. Can you write that I need to know more of
0: those people. Yeah, me too.
2: (laughs) I think we all do, right? (laughs) And so, when you think about that, the social equity program did a really good job of showing people how to navigate the process for licensure. But where it fell short is it didn't provide them with the capital they needed. So unfortunately, you still have a lot of folks who went through that program and fell prey to predatory lending because they you had multi-state operators who were very interested in working with them, and I'm using air quotes, uh, but simply wanted to eat away at their equity and take over their business model. So the social equity program, while it was a a great attempt, still has a lot of work to do. There has been a social equity fund that has since been started, um, but none of those funds have been given out to any
1: candidates yet. Coming up more with Peyton Shubrick from Six Bricks Cannabis in Springfield. Later, a preview of Shout, Elevate, Inspire at Stick and McGoverning with McGovern. I'm going to ask Peyton if there is uh, something in their deli style motif that they've got going on today that can help me not see how the universe unfolds in a terrifying way. You're listening to the Fabulous 413 on New England Public Media.
2: Making
1: Welcome back to the fabulous 413. It's 420 in the 413 and everywhere else. It is the unofficial cannabis holiday. And joining us from right around the corner here in Springfield from Six Bricks Cannabis is Peyton Schubrick, the owner of Six Bricks Cannabis. And we're learning about the business of cannabis as well as some of maybe the
0: chemistry of cannabis. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of that, you referred to this before we went to break, but all over, you've got it coming up again. But what is deli style?
2: Great question. So deli style essentially is the opportunity for folks to see the cannabis prior to them buying it. So what happens in a retail model is everything's prepackaged. So you can learn about the strain, you can learn about the product, but you never get to visually see it. And when we think about the legacy market, one of the nice things was you could see through the dime bag and understand like, oh, that flower looks really good. Yeah, this looks like oregano. How have I been ripped off again? Exactly. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, Delhi Style is an opportunity for us at Six Bricks to say, we acknowledge the legacy market for the pros it has. And now we want to provide that opportunity in a legal dispensary. And so very similar, like going to the deli at your local grocery store, looking to get your cold cuts, you can go up and decide how many grams you want of what string you want. And we will charge you based on the weight of that. Um, But it provides a really nice experience for folks. We're one of only six groups in the state to do it. Um, But it also, acknowledges we're not tone deaf to what the community of Springfield has previously experienced and would like to
1: see in their cannabis experience. So I have experimented throughout the course of my life and I have had terrible and terrifying experiences (laughs) where I see my life flash before my eyes. I understand how the entire universe fits together. And literally my childhood best friend called 911 and I woke up in an emergency room one time. If I come into Six Bricks Cannabis and say, I would like to partake,
0: but I don't want that to happen. I don't to want me that either. to happen to me. Anymore. We don't want that to happen. You wouldn't believe how expensive <laughs> a, uh, an emergency room visit can be if you go in an yes, ambulance. You would. I live in America.
1: <laughs> so is that something that uh, you could go to Six Bricks Cannabis and and find out what might work for you?
2: Oh, most certainly. One of the things that I truly pride myself on as we think about Six Bricks is the fact that we've taken time to really educate our bud tenders. And so bud tenders- Which is exactly
1: what it sounds like,
2: right? Yes. (laughs) These are the folks tending to the buds that you want to buy. And they are well aware of cannabinoids and terpenes and many of the things that we simply haven't discussed as a society as it relates to cannabis. What
1: are they? What's a cannabinoid and what's a terpene?
2: Yes. So a terpene is really the flavor profile of the strain in which you're actually going to get hints of maybe citrus and then you're going to align that to the effects that you're going to actually experience where the cannabinoids really start to drill into is it going to have more of that THC so you're going to have more of a hallucinant, or are you going to have more of that CBD where you're going to feel more of that body high um, and really have a nice experience if you're looking to to relieve some pain. And so we spent about four weeks with our staff just educating them on the science of it, but we took it a step further as well in that we host Wellness Wednesdays with Azalea Education, a group of women that are former registered nurses that believe cannabis can be a part of an individual's wellness routine. And so we really tried to cover our front and back and side as we think about cannabis and wanting folks to feel confident in the purchases that they were making but also not make it transactional so we don't ask you, you know, what do you want to buy today? How do you want to feel today? Right. That's a good place to start the conversation uh, so that we can make a more informed recommendation.
0: You've had a whole week of things going on at the store leading up to 420. And I know this is the last day. (laughs) We got you on the last day, the most important. But what are some of the other things that that you did this week to get geared up for 420?
2: Yeah, so we had the 413 kick it off on April 13th. (laughs) You know, being born and raised here in the city of Springfield, have extreme pride in that. And that was really us saying that we acknowledge 420 is important, um, but being from the 413 is important to us as well. So we kicked it off with uh, Thirsty Thursdays and
1: getting folks exposure to some different beverage options. Because there are cannabis-infused beverages, too. If you don't want to smoke it, if you don't want to take a gummy. yeah.
2: Yes, and it's not all seltzer, folks. We do have sodas. We have sodas (laughs) and beverage enhancers as well. Um, So we kicked it off there and we had a different theme every day. Flower Friday, really getting folks exposure to different strains. Um, And with that, also providing diversity of price point. Acknowledge there's nothing more disappointing than spending $60 on an eighth only to realize you don't even like it. I don't know about you all. I don't like spending $2 on something I don't like. I start to have that buyer's remorse. Um, So each day was something different. We had our expungement clinic in which we also included two food trucks, being fish grease from the city of Springfield, some really awesome fried seafood options, and then Crave from Holyoke was kind enough to come over as well. Great Great tacos. Shout out to their mofongo. Yes, yes, most certainly. So it was a wonderful lead up to today and a lot of what we're doing is going to carry through the weekend and so um, definitely pay us a visit if not today at some point this weekend a lot of great things happening in store.
0: Fantastic.
1: Peyton Shubrick from Six Bricks Cannabis on this 420. Is there truth to the indica, indica couch <laughs> I forget what the sativa part of that is. Like <laughs> there are different strains right and so the one yeah. of them is supposed to be like you're going to be totally vegged out. And the other one I can't remember what it is. The yeah. sativa has some fancy schmancy rhyming thing with it, too. But.
2: Yeah, most certainly. So, as you think about the strains, there are three different categories in which they can fall. Indica in the couch, that's going to be more of your relaxing, calmer, helping with sleep, so on and so forth. You then have a hybrid, which is a mixture of that indica sativa, um, which means that you'll probably start feeling good, um, maybe a little giggly, laughing, feeling uplifted, and then easing into a nice, almost. Uh, I won't say couch locked feeling, but more of that relaxing, like it'd be great to take a nap, right? (laughs) Uh, And sativa is the other one that you were thinking of. And that's definitely more of that uplifting, energizing. I'm going to get focused and plow through 100 emails, if you will.
1: Oh. That's not what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, he,
2: you didn't shop at Six Bricks. I know. So I mean. <laughs>
1: yes. No, I did not. You can fix it. What do you think the future holds for the cannabis industry? Because we've already started to see with like Northampton in particular had like the highest per capita number of cannabis shops in the entire Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Some of them have started to close. East Hampton has already lost one. Is this going to self-regulate? Does it need regulation like the city of Northampton was proposing to put a cap on number of pot shops? What's your take as a cannabis business owner on the future of this business? even though it's still in its infancy here in the Commonwealth?
2: Yeah, most certainly. I think that we're now at a point in the industry where it's no longer builded and they will come. Many operators came to the state simply saying, if I open a dispensary here, I'm going to generate X amount of dollars. What they didn't take into consideration, and what you've pointed out, is that oversaturation. So the reality is that consumers are in a position to demand more from their dispensaries in terms of the customer experience in terms of the quality of products and really have the purchasing power to decide who stays in business and who doesn't. I do think that at this point, we're going to see more groups, unfortunately, drop out just because they don't have enough folks walking through the door. But at the same time, I think it's a needed part of the industry because if you're not providing great customer service, if you're not helping folks find products that are going to actually work for them, then it's a lazy business model. And if you were... In that same mindset, in owning a pizza shop, you wouldn't exist past three months anyway, right? And so I think we're starting to see that natural selection starting to occur where groups that don't have a strong business model, have no strategies, no plan for marketing are not going to exist. Now, at the same time, I welcome that as someone who's been very intentional about their business model and wanting to provide top tier service to our customers. I don't think at this point we need overregulation, but it is figuring out what's the competitive advantage that Six Bricks has over our competitors, what do we do really well in amplifying that that will carry us? And the groups that can't figure it out, unfortunately, uh, won't survive
0: it seems like one of those, like, tenets of the business model that may be lost on people coming from outside the state is how important it is to have a strong tenet of community involvement with what you are offering and, like, who comes in your door, like, making sure you're still having that connection with wherever you are. It can't just be about the strains. It has to be about the people as well, because otherwise, like... Why are we doing this?
2: <laughs> oh, most certainly. I mean, our tagline at Six Bricks is people plan and purpose. I was going to bring it up because yeah. it's on you your see shirt. see it on your sweatshirt. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> most certainly. And I mean, it was really just simplifying what are the three things that are most important to us and aligning to that. I mean... Having an expungement clinic, we're one of three groups that have done so in the state of Massachusetts. And yet when you think about the millions of dollars, right, billions of dollars being made in this industry and the fact that many folks uh, aren't able to legally participate because they have a prior, because there's not more groups doing more to right the wrongs prior to a legalization, uh, it does showcase just the further divide as we're seeing it and experiencing it firsthand. But at Six Bricks, you can't miss the fact that we're from Springfield. It's on the walls quite a bit. Um, We pay homage to the city of Springfield in more ways than one. uh, And it's something I'm extremely proud of.
1: Peyton Schubrick from Six Bricks Cannabis right here in Springfield, right around the corner. Thank you so much for spending some of your your busiest holiday with us here in the 413. We hope to have you back more to hear more about equity in the cannabis industry and more about what you've got going there at Six Bricks. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure.
1: Coming up, McGoverning with McGovern. You're listening to The Fabulous
3: 413 on NEPM.
1: Time for our weekly check-in with U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts. U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern. McGoverning with McGovern. You can always send a question for the congressman at thefab413 at nepm.org or text us 1-800-639-9120 like Andrea Liebsen from Deerfield, Mass. Did? She asks you, congressman. Please ask Jim what American citizens can do to end gun violence in light of the fact that Congress refuses to take action. I'm sick of the thoughts and prayers comments from national leaders. If we can build a fence on the French King Bridge to protect the handful of suicide attempts from happening, we can do something to stop the slaughter of our children and diminution of safe activities in our communities. She wants to know what you have on this. And this comes, of course, where there's a mass shooting virtually every day or more than one mass shooting Every day, I think there were uh, five on Sunday or something along those lines. Any thoughts in regards to Andrea's question?
4: No, Andrea is, you know, I mean, she raises an important issue, and that is uh, violence is now the number one killer of kids in our country. And uh, the federal government, I mean, by, by that, I mean the Congress is not doing a damn thing. And we have filibuster issues in the Senate, and we have a Republican majority in the House who won't even let us bring anything to the floor. I mean, doesn't matter what it is. If it's anything to do with uh, gun control, they are blocking it. And um, we had a, a bill on the floor this week uh, because they decided their latest uh, attack was going to be aimed at uh, trans individuals. And they were talking about uh, trans girls in sports. And, it, it, I mean, it's just the most ridiculous thing in the world. But, but trying to, again, create a wedge issue here in this country uh, and saying they want to protect kids. Well, if you want to protect kids, you know, you ought to do something about gun violence. I mean, it is it is astounding. I mean, and it's not even monthly, it's not even weekly, as you point out, daily. So we are trying. We are using every procedural motion and move that we have available to us to try to bring something to the floor, to force a vote. We're going to continue to do that, and we're going to continue to speak out. In fact, when I'm finished with you, I'm going to a, a gun violence prevention task force meeting to talk specifically about other concrete actions we might take.
1: More to Andrea's point, and you posted an article from the Boston Globe that's saying that there were seven steps to get to gun safety. If if all the states adopted Massachusetts gun laws, we could, this Boston Globe estimates, you could save 27,000 American lives. Are there effective local things that the federal government aside uh, have been effective that you've seen in local communities or state to state?
4: Well, we have one of the lowest rates of gun violence, if not, if not the lowest of any state in the, in the country. So, I mean, we're doing something right here. But understand this, you don't have to check in with anybody when you cross into Massachusetts or any other state. Uh, so, you know, unless we all do it, then we all become vulnerable to potential gun violence, uh, where weapons of war, I mean, weapons that are used on the battlefield can be purchased and used to hunt down civilians and that's what we're seeing right now i mean and we and in a lot of states they're going in the opposite direction where they're not requiring you know people to have permits where they're not requiring people to have any training i mean this is insane and it i think it demonstrates the power of the gun lobby in terms of filling up the campaign war chests of members of congress um and buying you know their silence on this issue and that silence is complicity, and those people who are blocking gun control legislation, who are voting against gun control legislation, they're taking blood money, and they are responsible. They are now responsible. This is not just a problem with the NRA. It is those politicians at the state uh, and at the federal level who go along to get along and make believe like nothing's happening. I mean, I'm afraid when my kids go to a sporting event or a concert or – I mean, there was people were gunned down at a sweet 16 party. I mean, there's there's no end to where this violence uh, may occur. And it is it just has to stop. And people, not just Democrats and not just independents, but Republicans who I know care about their kids just as much as I do, have to have the backbone and say enough is enough.
1: Meanwhile, you alluded to this a little bit earlier. H.R. 734 is being considered in the House of Representatives. It's called the Protection of Women and Girls in Sports Act. It would mandate that, quote, sex in the athletic context must be recognized based only on a person's reproductive biology and genetics at birth. You gave a very fiery speech on the floor of the House about uh, protecting trans kids and then posted that on Twitter, and there were close to 1,000 comments about that
5: mr speaker uh, our rules committee meeting last night was an embarrassment republicans went on and on about locker rooms the same creepy stereotypes they leaned on when they tried to stop gay marriage on and on about fairness but no mention of the unfairness girls sports teams face when it comes to unequal resources unequal pay and unequal treatment on and on about safety but no mention of the number one reason america's schools are unsafe gun violence our kids are being slaughtered for god's sakes does anybody on the other side even care republicans claimed trans people don't even exist which makes me wonder why they've wasted all our time on on their creepy obsession with controlling the lives of people they think aren't even real republicans want to ban trans kids from sports but they won't ban child marriage in states like west virginia and tennessee enough is enough Stop the fear-mongering.
1: First, let's hear your, uh, your take on this bill, and then I want to run some of the, the critique of what your comments from Twitter by you and your response to that. So what's your take on this particular bill?
4: Yeah. Well, First of all, I mean, I've been doing town meetings all across my district. I mean, no one raises this as an issue, number one. Number two, I, I, I'm somebody who believes that everybody ought to be respected for who they are. And that we ought to be moving in a direction away from bigotry, away from targeting people in vulnerable communities. And you know, th- th- this is a deliberate attempt to try to create an issue where there really isn't an issue. And what they're doing is they're disparaging a the community in this country. There are trans individuals who are doctors, who are lawyers, who are in high-ranking positions in government. Let's get over this. And there are a lot of young kids trying to figure out who they are who will hear this debate and feel more isolated you know more depressed some might turn to suicide they will be targets of more violence more hate crimes I mean, for god's sakes haven't we had enough of this and i i said in the rules committee as they were bringing this up i mean the republicans are creepy they they, they come up with these old arguments that they use to try to fight against gay rights and against gay marriage. And, 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 and they just they come up with these really crazy scenarios that are just not reality. And so, look, it shouldn't be a radical idea to accept people for who they are, to love people for who they are. And let's get away from this trying to stigmatize and stereotype communities because it is so destructive um, and it can cost lives.
1: This is particularly in regards to sports, and the Biden administration last week was proposing new regulations that would allow schools to bar transgender athletes from participating in competitive high school and college sports, but didn't want a a blanket ban on athletes. Uh, And then there was some opposition on Twitter to your speech with people posting things like there are clear biological differences when it comes to physical activity. Sports is a physical activity. There should be separation. Other areas where there are generally no advantages or disadvantages based on gender, i.e. a desk job, is a different story. Uh, As well as you can love people, respect people, and care about people but not always agree with them. We can do all those things and still keep the privacy of biological women intact. The voices and concerns of biological women matter as well. What's your response to, to those sorts of push back on your position on I mean, HR I mean, 734
4: first all, yeah first of all th- this isn't a problem all right um, and you know let, let 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 local communities and school boards and parents and coaches work all, all this stuff up I mean I love that some of the comments are saying oh you know you're you know you're, you're, you're disparaging women's sports um, the bottom line is if you really you want to help women's sports let's make sure that they're funded equal to men's sports let's make sure the resources are there equal to men's sports. And if you're really worried about, you know, the protection of our children, I mean, I mean, the reality is is that uh, there has been more abuse of girls in sports by coaches and by others involved with the sport. And so, I mean, I, I just, I just don't, I, I don't get it. I, I trust the communities to be able to work this stuff out on their own. And I don't think the federal government should come in and, Blanketly say that girls cannot participate, uh, that trans girls cannot participate in girls sports, and if they do, we will deny them funding. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, let, if you want to have a conversation about this, you want to have a debate about Let's let's do that. Let's talk about this thoughtfully and reasonably. But in a number of schools uh, across the country where trans girls are participating in girls sports, I mean, I, I just haven't heard any complaints. In fact, I we, we've had people who have come up to the Hill who have talked about Oh, this is not a problem. The only place it's a problem is in Washington, D.C. Um, and to the extent that people want to talk about this, that's fine. But let's be very clear about what's happening. This is not about protecting girls' sports. This is about bigotry. This is about creating a wedge issue. This is about disparaging the trans community.
1: Boston Globe article this week from your hometown, Worcester bans field trips to Old Sturbridge Village following state approval of a museum charter school. The article says that Worcester public school students will no longer go on field trips to Old Sturbridge Village starting next school year, a decision district leaders made following concerns raised about the museum's financial relationship with a new charter school. What's your take on uh, your old school district not wanting to go to that legendary field trip location, Old Sturbridge Village?
4: Well, look, I love Old Sturbridge Village. I mean, and this is, has nothing to do with Old Sturbridge Village. It has to do with the approval of, of another charter school um, in Worcester, and a concern over the fact that funding will be taken away from public schools. So, look, I, I mean, that's a, a, a local issue, but I, I understand where you know where their concerns are coming from, and. Uh, And I'm a believer in public education. I believe we ought to fund public education. And I believe that we ought to make our our public schools as as good and as great as they possibly can be. Uh, And so I think this is just the school district showing their frustration. But uh, I hope we can find a way to work around it because, you know, I like Starbridge Village. Yeah, me too. It's a good place.
1: Uh, Last question. Politico, uh, there's an article today about the anniversary of the Green New Deal and Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey celebrating the ideas behind the Green New Deal, but a little critique about the vehicles that you all continue to drive. Markey hits the road in a 2007 Toyota Camry Hybrid. Senator Elizabeth Warren drives a Ford Escape. And then it goes on to talk about you and your car, which is your father's Jeep. Is that the vehicle that you're continuing to drive your dad's yeah, Jeep? Yeah, well,
4: my father passed away. I, you know, I, I took over the payments on his on his Jeep.
1: Uh-huh. And when it
4: wears out, I will move to hopefully with my wife's approval to an electric vehicle. But uh look, I mean the, the, the notion that somehow that uh, because we're, we're not we're not all on electric vehicles is somehow a, a statement that we're not committed to the green new deal is is absurd. I mean and the bottom you know we we have financial considerations which is we gotta i mean i don't have a i don't have the ability right now with a daughter in college and at uh two houses and all the stuff you got to do here to just start a whole new car purchase right now so i will do that when it is appropriate but uh for the in in the meantime uh you know i have some sentimental attachment to this yeah which is Pretty good gas mileage, and um, you know, uh, and I want to keep it for as long as I can because uh, it reminds me of my dad.
5: Oh
1: man, I'm driving my dad's car too. Luckily, my dad's still with us. It's a piece of crap uh, Nissan, but I am—I do have a Chevy Bolt full electric car on order that I'm eagerly waiting to get because my commute from Turner's to Springfield well, well, is much longer now. So,
4: well, and and I'm gonna—I'll—I'll I'll consult with you and okay. and how much you, your satisfaction with that <laughs> new purchase, and maybe I'll get this thing <laughs>
1: I'll let you take it for a test spin. I'll try. <laughs> U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts and Jeep owner, Jim McGovern, joins us every Thursday for McGoverning with McGovern. If you got a question for the Congressman, you can send it my way, thefab413 at nepm.org or text us anytime, one 800 639 9120 Thanks so much, Congressman. We'll talk to you again next week.
4: All the best. Be safe.
0: Up next, a preview of Shout, Elevate, Inspire, an evening of poetry, music, and theater supporting youth voices and social justice at Springfield Technical Community College this weekend with folks from The Performance Project and First Generation. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM.
1: Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. This Saturday, Shout, Elevate, Inspire, supporting youth voices in the arts and Social Justice, it is a benefit concert for the Performance Project, featuring Hanif Nelson and Samir Evans, amongst others at Springfield Technical Community College. And what the Performance Project and First Gen do is put on these incredible performances featuring young people from our area and from their most recent production called Mother Tongue. Before we introduce you to the ensemble, we will hear a piece that First Gen and the Performance Project has put together. It's called I Am the Voice.
3: Ma'avasum!
1: Yo soy la voz!
3: I am the voice! Mimi ni sauti! Ana a soul! Of the welcomer! Sagad good gurniko! Yakwa Men Ahlan, wa sahlan. The good and the bad. I'll say it, we'll do it! Mazuri namabaya! Ramro yanarambro! Lo bueno ilo malo! Peace! Art! Creativity! I am the voice! Yosoy La Vos! Ma'abasum! I am the voice. Mimi sauti. An soul. The unwelcome. The silent. The suppressed. The oppressed. The angry and the scared. The people who cross our borders. What? Those who never heard. The voiceless. I am the voice. The people that want change. Watu people
2: Hami want change. chahan chum. Anada earkiyar. The truth.
3: Things. The youth.
2: I am, am the, the voice. voice. Hate and love. The people
3: that get abandoned. The confused. The defenceless. yo soy la voz. More avasum. I am the voice. mimi ni sauti. An assault. Justice. Justicia. The united. Resistencia. Movement. I am the voice. The empowered. I am the voice of. My ancestors. Ya mababu zangu. I am the voice. Yo soy la voz. Mimi ni sauti. Ma, mimi ana yo. I am the voice of gugu, kwa, Sakti.
0: poder. Power
1: that is seven performers from first gen in the performance project I want you all to introduce yourself tell us your name and where you're from let's go this way
3: (laughs) hi my name is star and I'm from Springfield Massachusetts my name is Charlotte and I'm from Holyoke hello my name is MJ and I'm from Tanzania and I'm live in Springfield hi my name is Manisha I'm from Nepal Hi, my name is Lolly and I'm from Springfield, Massachusetts. Hello, hello, my name is Montasser. I am from Sudan and
1: I live in Springfield.
3: Hello, my name is Julita. I'm from Congo and I live in Springfield.
1: And that was incredible, so powerful, despite the fact that we were trying to challenge our engineer over there with all of the different <laughs> dynamics of the whole thing. It, but
0: the, that's what theater is all about, yeah. it is about dynamics. It's the thing that you can see on stage this weekend at Springfield Technical College.
1: Well, technically, they're not gonna be on stage this <laughs> week. They are, oh, excellent, that's yeah. great. So, the, But the whole Mother Tongue event will be happening elsewhere in May, which we'll hear a little bit. Let's introduce you to a couple of the ensemble directors here. James Arana and Julie Lichtenberg. Uh, James, where are you from? Good
6: afternoon, everyone. My name is James Arana, and I'm originally from Central America—Belize, Honduras, Guatemala. I'm the indigenous people of the Caribbean. Yeah. I'm from Belize. <laughs> where do you live now,
1: James? Now I live in Northampton. Which <laughs> yeah, is where I see. You. That Very sounds frequently.
0: like a, I'm not gonna say that. I'm <laughs> Julie Lichtenberg, where are you from?
6: I'm originally from New York City, um, and I live in Northampton as well. Tell us about what the performance
1: project and First Gen is.
6: Ooh! In a nutshell, yes. Um, we are a intergenerational community that um, believes in nurturing and supporting um, its members, and so everyone in the group um, comes together, shares stories. Um, we do a lot of leadership workshops, and um, we hold a lot of circles, story circles, and then ultimately. Our first-gen members um, create a performance. Mother Tongue took about 14 months to create. They worked with a lot of different artists. And um, these first-generation members also mentor younger children in at Rebecca Johnson School in our Ubuntu Arts community. Yes, i like to say that what we do is really create the space for people to get together, listen together, listen to each other, create the supporting and nurturing and respectful space to be able to tell their stories. And we do that through a variety of different ways of creating connections. Yeah, connection is definitely at the core of our work. Um, and actually, if we ever are, for a lack of words, to really encapture what we do, Montasser here shares a first-generation welcome that captures every part of what we do. I don't know if you're interested in hearing I that. I am interested yeah, in hearing that. Yeah, bring it. Here. Come yeah. in,
1: Montasser.
0: Yeah, they put you on the spot. Yeah, right. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Being
3: on the spot is what it's all about. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to First Generation. We are a community of many ages and ancestries who come together to create art, have fun, work hard, relax, be challenged, grow, make magic, create a safe and respectful space feel connection and learn to nurture and support each other we practice leadership claim a public voice in our communities and send powerful messages out into the world through our performances welcome i love
6: that Perfect. <laughs> it's, it's a lot easier than trying to explain it yeah that said it
1: and it's done in several different languages before english is spoken wow that's incredible and so this saturday shout elevate inspired springfield technical community college 7:30, with my friend samira evans who came up from new orleans makes her home in vermont now a great performer and hanif nelson with a cavalcade of other folks plus the first generation ensemble and it's a benefit for your work going forward right
6: yeah, it's, we actually have one annual benefit a year, and it's our benefit concert. And it, what really is exciting about it is that we have very seasoned artists who have been performing for years, um, like Hanif and Samira, along with um, artists who have come through the performance project, so Finta Sidame and Ayana Burnett, a poet and a singer. Um, Finta's also a theater artist, and they will also be performing. Um, And then First Generation does a very short selection from Mother Tongue.
1: And now Mother Tongue, I was lucky enough to get to see it at the Shea Theater in Turner's Falls a couple weeks ago. But if you loved that I Am the Voice piece, there are, for some people, more opportunities than others to see it. But there is an opportunity coming up pretty soon where people could see um, that particular piece, Mother Tongue.
6: Yeah, so the whole piece, Mother Tongue, is 90 minutes long, and it incorporates all the languages of the ensemble and many, many stories from their families, their countries, their cultures, as well as growing up in Springfield um, and Holyoke. And um, we are going to be bringing it to Holyoke um, on May 13th, Saturday, May 13th, at 6 p.m. at the United Congregational Church. At 300 Appleton Street, it'll be on our website, and we'll, you know, we'll be announcing it. But it's open to the public, and then we're hoping to bring it back to Springfield again, in the summer. And oh, we're, we're yeah. presenting
1: it also in the, um, Northampton High School, Eastampton High School, and other schools, and we performed it at.
6: Um, UMass, UMass and, and Hampshire, Hampshire Yes, we, yeah, we've been performing it a lot. Um, when we do the school shows, we can't have the general public there. But, right. yes, we've been bringing it to schools.
1: <laughs> so we only have one minute left, but first gen, you are all first generation something, right? Very quickly, again, down the line, tell us what you're the first generation of as part of first gen. Are... Or is this too hard a question to ask? Or whoever wants to jump in, go for it. In the last minute we have left. I am the first uh, trans woman in my generation. In,
6: in your family. In my family's in your family. generation. Other yes. <laughs>
1: first no. gen people? Is it? i go. go. All right.
3: I'll, I am or I'll be the first generation to graduate from high school and going to college.
1: Nice. nice.
3: I am the first gen of going to college of my mom and my dad. Oh, Hello. excellent. Yeah.
1: And a lot of people are first gen just to this country as as immigrants, you know, as my grandparents were, you know, or my parents are the first generation born to immigrants in this country. So it's really incredible. It's shout, elevate, inspire this Saturday, April 22nd, Springfield Technical Community College featuring Hanif Nelson and Samira Evans. And look out for Mother Tongue where it may be near a school or a church near you it's
0: going to be an incredibly powerful experience so yeah get out there and see it
1: thank you so much tomorrow in the fabulous 413 how close is the world to nuclear war northampton's dr ira helfand has been part of not one but two Nobel Peace Prize winning organizations opposing nuclear war and has just won an award from Morehouse College. We'll learn about peace building locally and globally.
0: And to help us decompress from all of that heavy topic, we'll enter the Cocktail Thunderdome with Sean Bilson from Judd's in Holyoke. And it's Live Music Friday with special guest Nome Shots and from the Lucky Shots.
1: <laughs> Our director is twice nominated today, Tony Dunn. Our engineer is Betsy
0: Snail on a Rail Cordis.
1: Our technical team is Bart, the real news boss, Rankin.
0: (laughs) Kara, the remapping Maven Foster and punk rock dupe. Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Rihanna, Missy Elliott, Redman and Method Man, Jay Giles Band, Afro Man, and Homebody. I'm Khalees Smith.
1: And I'm Monty Belmonte. See you tomorrow in the fabulous 413.